This is Season 1, Episode 4 of Interesting Conversations. I'm your host, Craig Burgess, and today I'm talking to somebody who I've known for a very long time. In fact, we both started our design careers at the exact same time, about 12 years ago now, which is crazy. I can't believe that time has passed so quickly. And his name is Julian Dyer. He's a web designer, he's a designer just like me, he's been in the web industry for as long as I have, so he's got the same amount of experience, and we've kind of shared a common career path all the way through our careers. In today's episode, we talk a lot about the future, really. We talk a lot about the future, we talk a lot about motorsport, and don't worry, it isn't boring, even if you don't like motorsport. The stuff that we talk about is interesting, because I'm not mega into motorsport, I don't know much about motorsport at all, I don't follow any of it, and we're particularly talking about the technology behind F1. And we touch on some other motorsports as well, and it's interesting. And then we move on to talking about the future. We talk about VR, virtual reality, and we get into talking about a lot of stuff about that. And then obviously, because we're designers, and because we're on the internet, and because we use the web, and because we're web designers, we talk a little bit about the web too. So this episode was really cool. The only problem with it was, is that it doesn't run as long as some of my other episodes, because the room was so, so warm. You'll hear me talk about it a couple of times in this episode where I'm complaining that the room is too warm and that I'm going to die. I didn't die, the episode is here. So this is season one, episode four of Interesting Conversations, starting right now. And simulators, Mm -hmm. because we sat right next to loads of gear, an Oculus Rift, uh, what's that switch thing that you said? That's a throttle quadrant. A, th- a throttle quadrant. Um, loads of... Wires. Wires. Um, what are those things called for the Oculus? Oculus the Sensors. Sensors, and then a PC, obviously, and then some really fancy pedals underneath underneath the table, mm. which are for simulators. Yeah. Let's start by talking about simulators. Wow, it's really echoey in here, isn't it? Because of those tall ceilings. I don't think, I don't think that'd help, even if we shut that. Why has it got a bolt on the inside of the door? I've no idea. <laughs> I've only just moved here, so I don't really know. And loads of hooks as well. Yeah, that's for hooking stuff on. <laughs> a lower hook and an ho- upper hook, just yeah. in case you get a small person staying in this room and you want and you want two sets of hooks. Anyway, let's, so let's start with simulators, because you, you've been in, interested in simulators for years, and when we're talking about simulators, what I mean is uh, computer simulators, so mm. dri- driving simulators, flying simulators, which is what that throttle quadrant is yeah. for. I don't know why you say it like it's so weird. I've never heard of a, a throttle quadrant. <laughs> is it specific to flight sims? Yeah, I'd say so. I don't think you'd really use it for anything else. I've, n- I've never even seen one. I'm pretty into video games, and I'm aware of the thing with simulators and things like that and I've never seen or heard of a throttle quadrant and so if you're into flight sims is the kind of even crazier stuff you can get than that there's people that have made like uh, 747 cockpits in the bedroom and stuff like that so if you think that's weird what so with what 200 switches or whatever yeah like all the screens everything usually for playing flight simulator and things like that very uh, high end stuff yeah, that is that's nuts. And can can you go on? Can you go on the internet and buy a seven four seven 
cockpit simulator. I think you can buy bits of the cockpit and make your own switches and levers and things. I think that's usually what people do. You know, when you see these big graveyards in America full of planes and they've taken them all apart, I think they do sell bits off for people that want to do that. Some people get like old racing car chassis and stuff that have been crashed and failed safety checks and things and they bring them home and build a racing cockpit out of it and things like that as well. That's, it's nuts. I mean, I like using a steering wheel to play racing games, but you're not as far far down that. I don't want to make you out like some kind of simulator, <laughs> some simulator geek. But mm. where where did it all start to get all this kind of simulator stuff? I don't know. Really, it's a lot of F one teams and things have sort of motion rigs and stuff, and and obviously that all trickles down, and people make things that are suitable for use at home. So. You can get consumer ones now that sort of have hydraulics and stuff and bases that move and things. Hydraulics? Mm. So you, you you feel the suspension and... Yeah, you'd feel the the sort of shift of the car as the grip changes and things. And all the games as well supply APIs so you can get that data and hook into that and play the games. And how realistic is those simulators? I guess you wouldn't know really because you probably... No, I've, I've not tried them myself, but... Even with an Oculus Rift, the sort of sense of immersion you can get is pretty good. And obviously, the more things you have, the more immersive it feels. And how realistic are those racing games? You know, like, which one? Which one's the main one that you play? The the Super Simulator. Um, these days I tend to play more Assetto Corsa. Um, and is that super realistic? I don't know. How how do you measure realistic? Really, I mean. Is it just difficult rather than realistic? I wouldn't say it's difficult as such. Some people say that if it's realistic, it shouldn't be difficult. Um, it's it's quite easy to get used to after a bit. It's more understanding the concepts of how you, you drive a racing car and how you handle it and how you use the brakes and the steering and things. It's, it's like any technique, really. And how is that different to just driving a normal car? Because a race car is a lot stiffer. You've got a, a lot of weight transfer. You obviously... At a lot higher speed, using the full power of the engine. Uh, not so race track's very different. It's very smooth. It's very flat. Uh, you have to attack parts of it, like the curbs and things. You don't have much suspension travel. You have a lot more mechanical grip. If you take a normal car onto a race track and drive it round, the faster you get, you actually lose downforce. The air gets under it and lifts it up, so it's actually skate around more. But the race car's usually opposite. It it's usually pushed into the ground. And you need to drive it faster to get more grip. Yeah, exactly. Which is obviously scarier and scarier mm-hmm. if you're a real racing car driver. <laughs> or if you're driving an F1 car or something like that, for example. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing that episode of Top Gear where Richard Hammond tried driving an F1 car. Mm-hmm. Oh, it wasn't an F1 car, was it? It was, it was uh, like a Formula Renault or something below one too. Something like that. Mm-hmm. And he just couldn't even start it. Yeah. And so so they, are they even difficult to start? Uh, usually very heavy clutches and things. Um only time I've driven around a track, I uh, went to a Geneta Media Day a few years ago and I got to drive around with Rick Parfit Jr., son of the late Rick Parfit, because he's a GT driver. I got to drive around the track on a, it was actually a road car, but it was a Geneta road car, so it's like a race car for the road, really. And the first thing you notice in that is quite a heavy clutch and a really, really stiff brake pedal. You know, you, you put your full weight on the brake pedal and it barely moves. There's no sort of servo assistance it's so that you can release the brakes very gently and unlock the wheels as they, they start to lock as you slow down. 
and driving around a track's a really odd experience because when you turn in and stuff, you you sort of feel all the the g-force on you, which you obviously won't get in a simulator, and you you, you feel the view because at the time there wasn't any virtual reality or anything, so you sort of feel the view is much wider than you would get on a monitor. I think with an Oculus Rift like we're we're going to look at some point, that's what you get in that because you you feel like you're inside it and the the field of view is so massive, it's one to one, and all the movement you make is one to one within it as well, which is it's a very different experience to anything else. You'd you'd expect to. I don't know much about racing cars, but I'd expect if I was to think about it, I'd expect a racing car's clutch to be really easy to press rather than really difficult to press. No, they're, they're very much more like a, an on and off switch. Any any high performance car, even a road car, would probably have a heavier clutch because it's got to transmit so much more power. Uh, so you can't really have any sort of sort of slackness to it, really. So all race car drivers have got really strong legs then to smash that clutch down. Yeah, but I suppose these days not many have clutches. Most of the sequential boxes and, and things like that, so you don't need it. It's all automatic, but. The brakes are always very, very stiff in a race car. There's no assistance. You don't want any sort of anything between your feel on the pedal and the actual locking of the wheels. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to probably not drive around a racetrack, but I've always really fancied driving a rally car. Yeah. Because I really like rally, rallying, watching rallying. And to me, they are some of the bravest mm, definitely. drivers that you ever see because... And, and it it takes balls to drive an F1 car at 200 mile an hour around a closed track and people have died doing it mm. but it's completely different in, in a rally car where they're on tight, tiny roads and potentially on cliffs and things like that and, and these guys might only be doing 70 mile an hour or I say only but they're only doing 70 mile an hour but they're doing it down a tiny little road <laughs> that's just terrifying mm. Yeah, if you've, you've seen any picture of the Robert Kibitz's car, you know, the XF1 driver that was rallying the car and he crashed it. He basically hit the end of an armco and the armco went right the way through the car. Jesus. Like a knife, basically, and it cut through his arm. Yeah. It nearly killed him. And that's when you really see how, how dangerous rally can be. Yeah, and often they're driving with knackered cars mm. as well because they might damage it on a previous mm. stage and they can't and they can't get to the point of fixing it for another few stages and the the playing with all that kind of thing as well and weather can hit you and they don't they don't stop if it weather gets too bad which sometimes happens in f1 mm. but yeah it's it just seems crazy crazy as a spot that it's mm. it's still stayed relatively similar to what it used to be as well yeah even though cars have got safer they've not really introduced anything in terms of safety rules in terms of ridiculous safety rules like what f1 has introduced i'm not an expert on f1 by any means but I kind of stopped watching it because it was getting more boring and more boring mm. as they started to int- introduce more and more stupid stuff. And, well, they've introduced smaller engines now. Yeah. They? They, they, they're trying to make it more relevant to road cars to get more manufacturers involved. But the reality is the the key problem with F1 is, is the downforce. The downforce that they have on the cars creates a, a lot of wake, a lot of turbulence. And cars following them can't catch up, so you end up with quite stagnant races. The phrase yeah. is dirty air, isn't it? Yeah. The thing is, they have all the technology not to have this, but it was banned in the 80s. The use of ground effects, which is where you have sort of a, 
cut out of a wing shape underneath the bodywork of the car and the negative pressure sucks it into the track but then the cars were getting ridiculously fast so they banned it <laughs> now we've got wings on top of the cars which make loads of turbulence and you can't follow each other so so that's why races are usually dull then yeah because they, they, they literally can't draft and catch up to somebody yeah pretty much if you watch any lower formula races like uh, Formula 4 or Formula 3 or something or even GP2 the cars have a lot less downforce, but the racing is an awful lot closer. You, know, you can see them catching up. They've got a better sort of mix of mechanical grip to aero grip, whereas in F1, it's it's pretty much all aero. So why why don't they want the racers to be closer? I think they do, but if you're a manufacturer that's spent, I don't know, several hundred million pounds on a, a wind tunnel or something, and then the rules say, oh, you can't use it, you might think, well, there's no point in continuing with this then. But they've done it loads of times with other stuff, haven't they? Where they've banned things and people have carried on. I suppose they have, but I suppose there's a lot of pressure that, you know, let's say if they did have a radical change of rules and the cars ended up, you know, having slower lap times than Formula 2, you couldn't have that really because people would be saying, well, why are we watching this? Those cars are faster, those drivers must be better. So they're sort of very painted into a corner with, you know, rules that have gone before and things. I think what they should have is allow ground effect but have it stipulated it cannot be any more than a fixed amount so that at least there's some sort of control over it or to switch to a formula where they have an engine supply for every car and then you get rid of the sort of engine deficit and things or so everybody's got to use the same engine mm, mm. or if they say you know had the sort of spec wings so every car just has one one wing design and they all have to use that it's pretty similar to what IndyCar did because they were, I think, having similar problems with that. So in IndyCar, all the cars are identical, but they can sort of change some some parts of the design, I think, within sort of limited amounts or, or whatever, but then you get very close racing, so... Which is what people want to see, though. Yeah, but there's this constant debate. Is F1 about, you know, the pinnacle of technology or is it about entertainment? And that's those are sort of two polar opposite arguments. If if you allow people to, you know, run off and do the best technology they can, it's going to be become a game of who's got the most money and the most facilities, and then it's not really a spot. But it's the minute, entertaining at, at the minute, they kind of don't allow them. They don't allow them to have the ultimate of the technology, mm. and they don't allow them. They, they don't restrict them enough to make it exciting. It's kind of stuck in the middle, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this is what they're always trying to do. I mean, this year they all said, "Oh, the race will be really bad because." Oh, the cars have so much more downforce this year and that's that's pretty much what's happened, but uh, I don't really know. Because <laughs> they, they keep going through phases of taking all the downforce off and then putting it all back on again. They seem to like, it's a bit of a merry-go-round in, in recent years, really. It'd be amazing to see what they actually could do with the technology if they, they weren't restricted and they just said, look, just do what you want. Just said to Ferrari, here you go, do what you want, do everything that you want to do and what they'd end up with probably wouldn't even look like a look like a car. It'd probably be I, I don't know, look like something else. Probably have eight wheels rather than four. But yeah, they don't allow them to do that either. No, I suppose I suppose you've still always got the issue with sort of crowd safety and things as well. If you made a four or five hundred mile an hour car and something goes wrong, it's got to go somewhere. Yeah. But there is I don't know if you've seen as as part of the Formula E sort of movement there's a, an automated car 
championship that's going to be starting as well. Where basically the remote control cars, essentially, yeah, but are self-driving cars, so they're not controlled remotely. They they drive themselves and they have to make their own decisions and things. So I think that could be quite interesting. So it's kind of about how well you can program the AI of your car, yeah, as well as building the best car. Yeah, exactly. So you're removing the driver element of it and replacing with it sort of technology element really but I suppose that's what manufacturers are going to want when they start making automated cars for the road yeah well they're kind of trying to make AI cars well they've already made them they've already made driverless cars and they're testing them in San Francisco and other places around the world but I remember reading a thing about driverless cars and they said they'll never fully succeed while, while ever we've got humans on the road because you can make the most amazing AI in the world, but they can't account for random human error. Mm, exactly. And you, you're never going to get to a stage where that's even possible because we've we've got infinite amount of decisions that we can make as a driver or one of your wheel explodes and you swerve across all lanes and mm. you can never get past that. No, and no, I suppose that's true of, of any process, really. If there's a human involved, it will go wrong at some point. Um, and I don't think that's any different with technology. At the end of the day, the day a human's got to make for it and try and account for everything. And, you know, we're flawed as people. We're not going to be able to do that. I'd often, I've often thought that it would be really cool to have a car that you get in on a morning, you sit on the back seat, it drives you to work, and you get out and you do the same when you mm. come on. That'd be amazing. It's called a bus, I think, <laughs> or a taxi. <laughs> Yeah, but having having your own personal car that drives itself. Although, will people ever fully trust them? That's, you know, that's another thing. Mm. Are, people, are people ever going to trust robots? Mm. Well, they always say that planes could basically fly themselves, but, you know, having someone there is a sort of way of covering it. I mean, I think yeah. a lot of planes take off by themselves, or a lot the, of it's automated. They land by themselves land, as well. yeah. Yeah. And fly in between by themselves as well. So the, the only reason the pilot's there is to soothe everybody else. Yeah. And to do that captain voice. Mm. It's the same with trains, isn't it? We're about trying to, well, we already have automated trains and things, but we're wanting to do more of that. You know, get rid of guards on trains and probably at some stage get rid of drivers. But again, you know, what if something goes wrong? Is the driver going to step out of the cab and deal with it? Or, you know, you just got people on a train then there's no sort of order to it there's no sort of procedure or rules or anything it's easy with trains really because it just goes mm-hmm. up and down a track yeah. and and all the rest of the bits are automated all the changing the tracks are automated and everything else i imagine these days with trains it's humans that cause crashes mm. usually yeah it's humans that cause two people to crash together when they changed lanes at the wrong time and there, wasn't there a crash the other month in London or something like that or a couple of weeks ago I think yeah. a train came off the tracks mm. yeah I think everyone are just uh, probably just a bit scared I don't think in our lifetime we're going to see fully driverless cars I'd love to see it mm. but te- Tesla have pretty much got a, a driverless car technology now and they're testing it and you, you get you get it in your Tesla car yeah. and the backlash that it gets and the bad press that it gets. <laughs> mm. Two two people, it killed two people. Well, I say it killed two people because the driver wasn't paying attention. Two people died when they crashed into somebody. But those stories are just going to always keep happening. And whenever 
even if there's only two deaths a year from driverless cars versus, I don't know how many deaths there is a year from other car crash, 20,000, 100,000, even if there's just two, they're always going to be picked up in the press and say, mm. the robots are killing us. <laughs> I suppose, yeah. And you just, you're, you're not going to be able to get, oh, I dropped my uh, coaster, coaster for the second time. It keeps sticking. Drop my phone. Dropping everything. I've dropped everything. I've dropped my notes. I've dropped my phone. This water just keeps sticking to this. <laughs> I need to keep drinking water because it's so warm in here. Mm. So let's go on to my. F- I actually can't see my notes now. I'm going to have to get this. Let's start where we we're going to start, which is where you began. Where I began. So we didn't really talk about what you did. No. But if you're going to. St- we went off on a tangent about cars and stuff, which is really interesting. But I want to talk about what you do. So I actually interviewed someone yesterday that kind of does a similar thing to what we do. So we we kind of do the same kind of job. We're web designers, uh, you know, graphic designers, um, front-end developers is the kind of a, an official term. And some people listening to this probably won't understand what that is. But it's, we're basically people who build websites. So... Where did you start with that and why did you want to do it? <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know if we should start by saying that we started together at HND. Yeah, true. Interactive Media in, what year was it? 2000 and... A long time ago. Six or seven or something. 10, 12 years ago. I can't believe it's that long ago. It's so long. Um, before that, I'd, I'd sort of finished sixth form and stuff and... I initially went to do a business studies degree and I didn't really want to do that, so I dropped out of that. Then I tried journalism and did the same with that and dropped out of that. So really I was sort of back to square one again. And uh, One day I sort of thought, well, I've always fancied learning Photoshop, so why don't, why don't I try that? So I like, rented a book from the library, you know, one of these big textbooks with a CD on it. It had a load of assets on it. and So I got halfway through the book and I sort of picked up you know, quite a lot of Photoshop and stuff and really it was sort of went from there um, I started uh, Photoshopping liveries for uh, cars in a racing simulator, a simulator it was called uh, Netcar Pro which has since become a set of Corsa which is uh, again you can get for sort of PC and PS4 and things that's really where I started sort of designing stuff properly. as a hobby yeah, I suppose as a hobby, and then it sort of became a, a thing of, you know, how can I monetize this? How can I, you know, take something that I quite enjoyed doing and, and turn it into a career of some sort, you know, vaguely related to that? Uh, and that's when I sort of joined the course at, at Wakefield College. It was, a, it was HND then, wasn't it? Uh, interactive mm-hmm. media. I think there's there's so many people that do what we do, starting out as a hobby. Mm. I can't think of anybody that starts it thinking... I want, what career can I do? People mm. don't think, what career can I do? And then pick web design. I, I, I don't know why. It just sort of never occurs to you really. When you're at school and things, you think of careers as things like, oh, being a doctor or being an engineer or or whatever. You don't sort of really have a scope of, you know, there's a whole world of jobs out there. It's, it's crazy right now that, and I know this because two years ago I went into a school, even right now, when we went into that school, they weren't aware that people existed 
that made websites and got paid for it, even though they sit and they use the internet every single day of their life, they didn't even realise that people were out there getting paid mm-hmm. to, to build it, basically. To build it, yeah. Mm. That somebody makes Facebook and there's a guy at the top of Facebook that's bi- that makes mm. billions. People don't realise it. Mm. I think it's because it's not something that people necessarily aspire to be. You know, it's not a not a job you think, wow, wouldn't it be great if I sat at a desk all day? It's not sexy. Stuff? Yeah, it's not mm. se- not a sexy job. But in a way, I sort of always knew I'd, I'd sort of... I always had a feeling that it'd end up, end up like that. I can remember in sort of like year nine or something, we had some project in English to make like a brochure for a theme park or something. And I did that and I got really into it and I thought, oh, that'd be quite good to do. But I never really thought thought of it then. I think it's because at school you're sort of, you're in this mindset of doing subjects. You're not, you know, you go to school and you learn English or you learn science or you learn art or something. You don't think, you know, that's a subject. It's not a, it's not a profession. Whereas when you get to, you know, sort of uni sort of level, it's, it's different then. And people still, careers advice, particularly in the UK, is still terrible. You, the, and it's actually in our in our game in in web mm-hmm. uh, when you make websites it's kind of impossible for careers to be any good because there's new jobs being created all the time in the years that we've done it in 10 12 years there's been loads of new jobs that's been introduced i mean there's people even doing social media for a living mm-hmm. now getting paid to make social media stuff and then there's the whole thing about UI designer and a UI developer and a UX designer and a UX developer and then you know there's just so many jobs and how do you tell kids that there's all these jobs out there? I don't know really because I think a lot of the ones with very professional titles they're, they're hard for me to understand and I work next to people like that. I agree. You know, if someone said, "Oh well, what does a solutions architect do?" I was like, <laughs> "I don't know." Come up with answers for stuff, don't they? Really? What does a solutions architect do? It, it's sort of a, it's like a technical person at a sort of, I suppose they sort of sit almost at a, a bidding stage, or you know, someone, a client comes to us with some requirements, and they say, oh well, we want to be able to do this, and the technical, the sort of solutions guys, they're usually sort of ex-developers, really. It's sort of like a sort of sideways step from being a developer. So they'll, so they'll actually look at and they know the code base so they can say, you know, how could we, in theory, achieve this? And they might work with a, a technical architect, as they're known. A technical salesperson. No, a, a technical architect's more someone that knows the sort of the framework and the structure of things like APIs and stuff. So they sort of work together and they come up with solutions either for bids or for new clients or whatever. But, you know, try explaining that to someone that don't even know that people get paid for making websites. It's it's not going to get there. I know. And then even when you think about making a website, mm-hmm. there's somebody who makes a logo mm-hmm. and then there's somebody who designs that website. And there might even be a couple of people who design it because these days you've got information architects and people like that as well if, if you work in a big enough agency. And then you've got people like your solutions guy and then you've got account directors and then when you come to building a website you've got someone who builds a little bit of it and then someone who builds another little bit and then someone who builds another little bit of it and then you might even have testers you might yeah. even have website testers and documentation we have a whole team for documentation yeah. writing guides on how to use it and training people you know it can get a, it's quite surprising how, how big a single product something like a SaaS product can get um I know it's it's 
crazy when I think we we often talk about at work. We're we're always saying how complicated websites have become, and I and I back when I were a lad, I remember when you could just write some CSS and write some HTML, and that was a perfectly acceptable professional thing to do. Mm. That was enough for yeah. a, a real website, and now they've become so complicated mm. that. I often think that we're making things too complicated for people to actually enter this industry. And I I often have conversations with people about it. And how do you teach all this stuff to somebody? How do you teach this stuff to an 18 year old that's highly complicated, that's very technical? And we're almost painting ourselves into a corner Mm. as an industry, even though the internet continues to grow and we need more people like us we're actually making it way too complicated for anybody to enter our industry. And I don't know the answer to that. No, I don't think I do either because, you know, when I I sort of started out, I never sort of thought, oh, what's my job going to be in however many years? Because you actually need quite a high level of technical knowledge to get a whole project together. Uh, I think that's what's what's quite surprising about it. Um, When you start out, I mean, when we were on the course and we were doing those first projects where we were putting all the specs together and we were like, oh, this is taking ages, this. And it was like, what, two days a week for three months we were doing it. You know, some of the sort of stuff we put together now at work is, is years worth of work. You know, we could be, you know, transforming a whole section and it might take two years. And it's, it's just crazy to think that two years, a team of 105 people working on it all the time. A team of 105 people working on it for two years solid. Mm. Yeah, that's just nuts. And then you get to the end of it and it needs rebuilding because <laughs> because it's taken mm, so but, long. You know, that software development, you know, think how big uh, game agencies are and things and how many people are involved with that. Um, yeah, that, that's a good parallel, actually. Websites, websites are starting to become like video game agencies. When somebody makes a AAA title like a Call of Duty or a FIFA or something like that, when somebody's making that, that's a team of hundreds of people. And I think... In another 20 years' time, websites are going to be like that. I mean, Facebook, they've got thousands of employees all working on one website. Yeah, essentially. Essentially one website. And we're going to get to that point where you just it's impossible for just you as an individual to make a website because they're going to become so technically complicated and so so full of stuff that you you feel like as a professional to do a job properly you've got to know and you've got to do that's why whenever I do any personal projects I always use something super simple and I try to detox from it all and try to remember what things used to be like and try and keep it as simple as I can but even then you still go towards new technologies and you're still trying out new technologies and nothing's ever as simple as it used to be and I'm not saying it should it should be as simple as it used to be but I do think we're adding needless layers of complexity to some things especially I don't want to get too technical because people might not want to know about some of this stuff but when you need package managers on top of package managers to make things work you know yeah, I've, I've never gone down that route, you know, so I've heard you talking about these things and thinking, why bother? What's wrong with it? Just like opening a HTML file and having a bit of CSS and, you know, it, for me, working in that way 
never really appeal because you become so reliant on so many things. The more things you rely on, it's like when you're building a WordPress site and you've got loads of plugins, you just end up, you just need one of those key plugins to not be updated anymore or something changed in the core that doesn't support it. And the whole lot's, lot's gone, really. So I think sometimes it does help to sort of go back to basics, really. I agree, but I think professionally, when you go for a new job, you're expected to yeah, know that stuff. I think that's that's not always great, really. That's why, you know, if you try and pare stuff down and, you know, still keep a high level of understanding about this stuff, but, you know, you need to know what it's doing behind the scenes, really. You know, why are people using all these wrappers and things to do all sorts of different things? What is the issue that they're trying to overcome? I think... I think generally a lot of parallels can be drawn to something like F1. And in fact, a lot of parallels can be drawn to any technical career these days that if technology is involved in a career that you're working in, and to be fair, nearly every career is these days, everything's getting way, way more complicated than it needs to be to the point where it's almost being designed to push out the kind of people, a particular kind of person that they don't want in that career anymore. You, you can't you can't be a web designer and want to use simple technologies these days unless you're a freelancer or something like that it's I mean you've got more experience of it than me of working for different agencies and seeing how they use all those different technologies yeah. I mean have they always kind of pushed for you to be using new technologies at most of the places um, you go to not particularly no I mean do they care Sometimes it's been the opposite. I've been trying to push them, you know, workplaces where, you know, you're wanting to, to do stuff in a better way or change the working practice so it's it's in a better way and, and that's been quite hard really. Um I think it's it's so dependent on the the agency and what it's trying to do, but uh I sort of see a lot of parallels between, you know, think what cinema was like in the early days. You might have a, a team of five people make a film. You know, and that would be a film that went to every cinema and there'd be someone playing the piano when it was on and stuff like that. Yeah. And you look at a modern film, you look at the credits on a modern film, there's hundreds and hundreds of people involved in it. Uh, I think I think it's just because our industry's still in quite an early stage. We're still at sort of, you know, someone playing the piano while the, the pictures flick by. That's what, sort of where we are at the moment, I think. Yeah, I, I think we are. The internet's only been around for mm, 30 years. 20, 20-ish years, 20 years, you could comfortably say 20 years, it's popular, it's been popular for 20 years, it's been mainstream for 17, I'd say, 2000s, and then it's been indispensable for 10 years, at the very least, 2007, I mean, no, God, it's been indispensable for way earlier than that, and yeah, I think as that continues to go on and on and on, we're just going to get to a point where it gets even more complicated. I, I heard someone, I can't remember who it was, who were talking about it, and it was, it was some kind of, um, kind of like a a self, self-development self guy, you know, a, a guru or something, and somebody asked him, what career should I get into? And he said, I really want to be a developer. Should I become a developer? As in, should I be someone who makes websites? And he said, no. <laughs> <laughs> he said, don't get into it, because what you're going to find in the next 10 to 20 years is that those careers become commoditized because they're so vital to how the world works 
that every man and the dog is going to be getting into being a developer. Everybody is going to be getting into, I guess, what you call quote unquote IT. And that's going to be everybody's career. So if you get into being a developer now, you're not going to be making the same kind of money that some people are making now. And some people are making a lot of money from it at the minute, but in another 20 years time, everybody's going to be doing it. And the price of a developer will be so low that it won't be a career for most people to take up, which is crazy. I'm not sure if I agree with that though, because I can count the de- you know the decent developers that I've met on the fingers of one hand. So I still think that you know there's a shall I say a big range of skills uh, with developers, especially because uh, you know I've worked with a lot of people that you know label themselves as developers and stuff, and then I've had to go in and basically do their work for them because they've not done it right and things so I think development is one of those professions that people start out as a hobby and they don't necessarily take it to be as a a professional level that maybe they should do but that's that's just in my experience really I do Uh, I do think in another 10 years time people won't be I've got my costume (laughs) I do think people won't be buying websites in the way that they're buying websites. Mm. I think they're going to keep keep advancing with technology and we're going to get to a point where most people are making their own websites because the technology is going to be so advanced mm. that there'll be no point in hiring a web design company to make your website. I do genuinely see that in 10 years' time. That Some of the tools out there now, things like Squarespace, some of these things are ridiculously intelligent mm. and to be fair, they look good. Then they look nice, and people are just not going to be paying three grand to a web design company. Or they'll be paying to some for highly specialized instances, but I don't think there's going to be millions of web design companies in ten years' time. I think everybody's going to be doing it, doing it themselves, and I do believe that'll be commoditized because everybody will have a website. Mm. I think as a business model, software as a service is always going to be stronger because once someone's bought into a system they're they're more likely to sort of stick with it and develop it and as long as you keep up with the the demands that have been made you you commit more of a success of that I mean we've seen that again in the games industry that there's more games with more sort of downloadable content and stuff and it's not just you know a game is released and that's it they keep building on it and I think that's going to become a more more of a common business model. Definitely. I mean, look at Grand Theft Auto. The latest Grand Theft Auto, they released it for the Xbox 360 and the PS3, and then the new consoles came out and they redeveloped it again and released it again in line with the PC version, and then they've constantly updated it and constantly added more content, and they've made an absolute killing from that game. And other big companies are getting into subscriptions and and SaaS software as a service, Amazon do it, Amazon Prime subscription is kind of, it's not software as a, well, it sort of is, it's it's kind of a, a subscription to a company for all sorts of stuff, you get free delivery, you get free access to their videos, you get free access to loads of songs and music and th- so many companies are going that way, even Apple, Apple are doing it as well with Apple Music and just you know, every every big company is getting into providing subscriptions and things mm. like that. It's not just big companies either. A lot of small 
development agencies that uh, or games development agencies that do very specialist game like a lot of the simulations and stuff uh, there's one called uh, IL2 which is a combat flight simulator set in World War 2 and that's developed in Russia they've got quite, I don't know how big their team it's probably 20 or 30 people but what they do is they release a sort of game every probably 18 months, 2 years and it's built on the same engine but it's sort of new content and things and they also develop the game engine at the same time and you know you pay a bit more of a premium for it you might pay 70 or 80 dollars for this game and extra things for extra planes and stuff but what that allows them to do is develop them into a really high standard so the quality of what you're getting for yes a lot smaller market you know it's not going to be on a PS4 or something but the quality for that sort of specialist market is still very high you know and those games sort of really do push a lot of the technology you know so if you play a game like that in Oculus Rift it's all really well sort of put into it and it's probably one of the best experiences in in something like a like an Oculus Rift, yeah, the the whole the Steam thing. If you're not familiar with video games, which there'll be people who's who's listening who isn't, and Steam is kind of like iTunes for video games. Mm-hmm. Really, these days, it's pretty much the only place to buy video games digitally. Mm-hmm. Well, there is other places, but it's the most famous by far, and that that kind of has opened up a whole new level of games that's given access to people like you said people with even one person studios there's people on i remember oh i forgot what it's called now but there was um a side-scrolling castlevania type game that came out a couple of years ago that was completely made by one guy it took him something like 15 years to make it he, he wrote the music score for it he made all the graphics he made the video game code and the the entire thing and then he made a fortune from it and then that ended up did getting released on PS4 and Xbox and things and that that that's kind of the opposite of the way that video get the, the way that the web design industry is going and the way that films are going and things and video games are actually there's still big budget games out there like Call of Duty and things but often I see where the innovation is happening mm. is in these small companies yeah, these specialist games yeah, that have been given access to this massive marketplace. And there's there's tons of innovative games out there, even stupid stuff like Goat Simulator, where you play as a goat. And I Am Bread, have you, have you seen I Am yeah, Bread? Yeah, I've seen I Am Bread, that's quite good. <laughs> yeah, where you, you basically, it's a, a toast simulator, or a bread simulator. <laughs> so, that, yeah, there's loads of innovation happening in those spaces just by Steam existing. And yeah, you've got those two two different ways where that's where actually you often see the technologies going the other way on those kind of things. Yeah. People are making lots of retro games that look like 80s games mm-hmm. and making a fortune from it. My, one of my favourite ones ever is Broforce. I don't know if you played Broforce. I've not played that now. Oh, it's amazing. It's just, it's just a side-scrolling shooting game. Mm-hmm. That's literally all it is. But it's, re- it's really well done and it's got loads of characters in it, but it's got loads of action characters from 80s in it and, and 90s and things. So it's got Neo in it and it's got Arnold Schwarzenegger in it and it's got, um, God, what's he called? Time, I'm going to say Time Commando, but not Time. What, oh, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Commando, Future Commando. Oh, I forgot his name. Anyway, it's got all those kind of cool... Um, that's they're really sticky they're really sticky these uh, cup holders yeah it's got loads of action heroes in it and it's a really cool game and I think it was about 12 quid to buy or something and it's they've made an absolute fortune 
But yeah, it's Steam's amazing. That in fact, pretty much that's where I play most of my games. When I do actually get around to playing a video game, I play games that cost me a fiver that will last me months, yeah. and I'll I'll pay fifty pound for a new game that's been made by a team of five hundred people, and I'll play it for ten minutes and I get bored. Mm. I think that's been a big problem with, you know, you get sort of these sequels, endless sequels to games, and they sort of run out of ideas, really, and they stop pushing it. It's, it becomes a sort of yearly mark, or we have to produce a game by then. I think Grand Theft Auto is one of the few that's booked that because they don't do one every year. You know, they probably spend three, four, five years putting it together, and they they put a lot into those games, the amount of detail in those games, and the... The quality of it, it's just pretty unbelievable, really. And they actually make a good game mm. every time. They care about making a good game. And they push the technology to its limit as well. You know, there's not much uh, processing power left on the table in those games. Yeah. So, we, we, we spoke about video games loads of times. And I want to, I asked this to one of my other guests as well, on one of my other previous episodes, about good design versus bad design. I always think it's an interesting topic to talk about between designers because um, a lot of people don't really understand the difference between good good design or bad design or they don't care um, because you, you've got me or you who are kind of attuned to this thing might see something and think oh it looks shit but most people don't see that kind of thing and I always ask what do you consider good design and what do you consider some examples of bad design what's your kind of favourite design stuff, anything, cars or motorbikes or toasters or houses or whatever it is? I don't know. I think the best decade or my favourite decade of design is probably the 1930s. When you look at those designs, they were really futuristic, really. They were quite optimistic, which in retrospect, when you look at that time when it it ended in the Second World War, essentially... You know, it's, it's really quite sort of sad to see that there was this sort of big futurist movement and this strive for sort of technology and a modern way of living and things. And I think that's always interested me the most because a lot of technology was new then, sort of mass production and stuff, and they were starting to really get get familiar with how, how things could be mass produced so that everyone could have them and they could be utilitarian and beautiful at the same time. Uh, if you look at something like a car factory from the 1930s, it's very recognisable to a car factory now. Uh, certainly a place like the Cowley plant where Morris made all their cars, their, their process was essentially the same as a modern car company. So you'd have one factory making the engines and other specialist parts and they'd all be brought to the central factory and put together and built into a car. Uh, and when you see the factory working, it's it's quite unbelievable how how that looks and how familiar it is. And they were turning around a car every two minutes. The current Cowley factory turns around a car every one minute. So you know, in that time, they've they've halved the amount of time it takes to build a car. But you know, it's it's quite extraordinary to think that, and to say that every car was sort of road tested as well, just like it is now. It's quite an amazing decade to look at. That's insane to think nearly 100 years ago they were making cars in a minute. Yeah, or two minutes, that was it. Well, in, in two minutes. A cycle for them. But just the sort of ingenuity in that and 
all the guys are doing are using hand tools as well. It's not like a modern factory where, you know, they've got these fancy drills and stuff swings in and they've got robots painting stuff. Yeah. Some bits are even automated, like some of the sort of welding of the bodies and stuff. So, you know, obviously that, at, at the end of the 30s, that turned into producing bombs and guns and things like that. So, yeah. uh, it's it's... It's always a sort of bittersweet decade, really. But in terms of my, in terms of my favourite looking cars, mm-hmm. there's got to be seventies and eighties mm-hmm. cars because a lot, of, a lot of those, you know, the, you, you typical kind of walnut dashes and big dials and really cool looking radios and, but you know, kind of any kind of seventies or eighties American car as well, inside look really cool and they still look cool now and they've kind of got an attention to detail and a care that people don't seem to care about anymore we've got better designers now better everything better technology and none of the cars look as Mm. good i think you probably say similar things about some some of the certainly the high-end cars of the 30s the way that so all the dials are laid out they're perfectly symmetrical and They've got sort of lovely typography on them and stuff. You know, these sort of very sort of tall, condensed fonts and things. And when you look at decades and stuff, decades used to have sort of quite quite a fixed style and that seems to have sort of dissipated, really. And I always wonder if it's because of things like the internet where the world has got smaller and people have, you know, if you want a, you want a style of your own, you can, you can do it. But as a society, we've sort of lost that, yeah. that sort of look of a... A decade and of a set style. Yeah, I, I suppose on my last episode with Ian, we we talked about music, and mm. I was saying that I was born in the eighties. I was I'm technically a nineties child, really, and there's nothing in the nineties to be proud of. Not nothing in the noughties to be proud of, and nothing nothing in the current decade, whatever you whatever you call the twenty tens. Nothing in that decade to be proud of, and we've we've got no identity. For the last nearly 30 years, we've had no distinctive identity of... As a society, you mean, or... Well, as a society and Mm. culturally as well, I think, and in terms of popular culture and anything you think of in terms of... You can can very definitely think what 90s music sounds like, but 2000s is completely... It's just a blur of mush, isn't it? It's just nothing. Even though a lot of the 90s is like that, I mean... Yeah. Can't think of that much in the nineties that was particularly good. It's not good, but it's defined mm. uh, in a way. But cars, not really that defined. Two thousands, you can't you can't even think of a two thousands car or one that you think will ever be a classic, and you'll think, oh my god, that was the car that made the two thousands or the nineties. Only thing I think of is the nineties is like a, a Subaru Impreza, mm. that kind of thing. That's the only thing I can think of in terms of 90s. And then there's a couple of good films out in the 90s. But you know where you've got, like you said, you've got clearly defined eras before that. You've got the 60s, which is really defined. 70s, really defined. 80s, really defined. And previous to that as well, 30s, 20s, 40s, etc. But now that's all disappeared and you, there's there's nothing that's defined. Nothing that you can say that, yes, that was the 90s. Maybe we ran out of ideas. Maybe we thought well, we've pretty much done. We've done a big variety of stuff. Do we need? Do we need any more? Can we just, on an individual basis, just pick what you like and you can have it? You know, I think as a society we've sort of become quite 
self-centred really certainly after the sort of 80s I think society changed really to being about the self not not the common good you know you see pictures from the 50s and all the men are wearing hats and long coats and shirts every single person and now sort of is there a certain style that everyone looks like not really there's like little sort of subgenres of people like hipsters or mods or whatever that you still see little pockets of but nothing more than that I don't think no the, no there's no no defined style or anything like that now and I, I don't know whether we'll when we're 60 mm. or whatever we'll look back and we'll think wow look at the 90s yeah. what a great look that was yeah <laughs> will, will you remember it then but some, something I always, always think about as well, with cars particularly, is that I used to always think, so if you think back to, I think it was the 90s when it came out, the Ford Focus mm-hmm. at that particular time. And I distinctly remember thinking about that car and thinking, that's never going to look old-fashioned. Mm-hmm. And I never thought it would. And now it does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and now it does. And it's really weird to look back on that stuff and think, I wouldn't say it was 90s, it's not particularly defined the 90s but you look back at it and think it looks old-fashioned and you can never you can never consider that stuff at the time and I don't think even even though we're in 2017 which is 20 years ago in the 90s nearly I don't even think that 20 years is enough to be able to give the 90s any kind of perspective and any kind of any kind of style or anything and I wonder if you actually give all these styles to things like the 90s retroactively yeah. 50 years after it really happened i don't think when you when you were in, when you were in the 80s you really thought that mm-hmm. although when i spoke to when i spoke to ian we, we were talking about the 60s and he was yeah. born in the 60s well he, he grew up in the 60s and he loved the 60s and he still thinks a lot of the stuff in the 60s culturally uh, film wise music wise he still thinks a lot of that is never been beaten and I'd agree with him with some of it. Um, but I don't feel like that about the 90s or the 2010s or, or the 2000s. And it's a bit depressing, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we, we've got nothing nothing to be proud of. We're not proud to be a 90s kid or an 80s kid or a, a 10s kid or, or whatever you call it. I wonder if technology itself has got so refined now that you know, it sort of waters down. I mean, a lot of cars now look pretty much the same. There's not really any that have a sort of really standout style or anything because, you know, maybe we've sort of got, sort of honed it to the point where, you know, this is round about the answer and all the stuff looks the same and things and stuff is made for, I suppose, quite utilitarian purpose rather than than anything else because the more utilitarian it is, the more people it's going to appeal to, the more money you make off it, the more you sell, things like that. Yeah, I think cars, again, is a good example because they, they release a new car every year or every two years and they make a tiny tweak to it and then sometimes they make a, a completely new design. But then it's never that different from another design. It's usually pretty similar. Only thing I can think of is like a, a Honda Civic. That's literally the only consumer car I can think of that was actually a bit different and even they've kind of they went a bit normal when they redesigned it they went a bit normal so yeah it's really interesting to look at it but it, that's good design sort of so what's, what do you think is bad what do you think is bad design 
Where to start, really? Um, <laughs> Modern design. Bad design. I think I think what has happened with the software, I think the sort of quality of software and things has, has dropped a lot. You know, when you, you think how reliable Macs used to be and now it's not uncommon to have some sort of problem or things like that. I think people have got quite complacent because they think, oh, well, I can just redeploy it if there's a problem. It doesn't really matter. I don't need to test it as much. You know, if people could only deploy it twice a year, I think they'd uh, probably uh, do a lot better job of testing it and things. I think yeah, it seems to be a lack of refinement and in, in stuff in design. You see that in video games a mm. lot because they, it's, usually you get some kind of day one patch mm. that's usually a couple of gig big because they didn't <laughs> fix something. Yeah, and they left it unfinished, went, yeah. went to uh, went gold. Yeah, and but yeah, you see, you see it with you see it with Max, especially Max. Max is a good example because people used to the slogan used to be just they just work. That's why people bought a Mac, and I think now they've become so popular. Everybody's got a Mac that my Mac's breaking down. My MacBook's breaking down as well. My my MacBook when I started my job was broken before I got there. <laughs> it had to be sent back because uh, it gone kaput. I've I've had my screen replaced on mine twice. Um, today the screws on the bottom of it started unscrewing themselves, and there's been a constant bug in Sierra since I had it, where the screen stays black when I open up it when I open up the screen from sleeping. Basically, yeah, I think I had that as well. <laughs> yeah, and if you look on the internet, it's it's a big bug. Everybody complains about it, and it doesn't get fixed. And yeah, I, I agree. There's definitely complacency in in software, but I don't know why. I, I don't know if, particularly with Apple, I don't know if it's because they've become so popular, or they don't care about MacBooks as much, and they, really they care more about iPhones, and they care more about iPads, and they don't care. Even if they say they don't, they do care. Maybe they don't care as much about computers anymore, or because they're making so many. Um, the standards have dropped. You, you know, it's inevitable, isn't it, when they're making... So many of them. Hmm. Yeah, when it when it used to be such a, a smaller industry and now they they make, what, seven, eight hundred billion dollars a year, hmm. Apple. They can afford to be a little bit complacent <laughs> when you're making eight hundred billion dollars. I mean, unfortunately, that's the way it is. Hmm. What else do I think is bad design? Uh, Android. Just all of Android. It's just awful. Yeah, because when I when I moved here, I got my house phone and stuff, and there was me, my mum, and my dad trying to input my number into their phone. And my dad has worked on computers for thirty five years. He's built his own computers. He's never off his iPad. He's always on his computer. My mum teaches people how to program JavaScript, and is always on a laptop. Has used it all of her career. I work in an industry that designs interfaces and stuff and none of us could put in a uh, new contact into Android without screwing something up or ringing someone halfway through inputting a number or anything. It's It was just absolutely abysmal. Okay. They, they sort of, I think what they've done is they've sort of cut so much out of the design that you look away from it and you look back at it and you've totally lost all your context as to where you are and what you're doing. And you can't figure out what you need to press on to input and type a number in and things. And it's just a series of bits of text and bits of lines. And there's no context to that design then. 
Was that an Android house phone? No, it was an Android mobile phone from one of my parents. And it was just just so difficult to do a really low-level task. And just I just find using Android phones terrible. Yeah, I, I flip-flop between them. I, I don't mind Android, and I've used Android for the past year and a half or something. Just switched back to iPhone because I got sick of Android. But actually, I didn't get sick of Android. I got sick of not being able to find a quality phone. Android, because I always picked particular phones that had default Android. Default Android, vanilla Android's nice, and it works well. But the problem that Google have got is that they released it as an open source piece of software and that means that everybody tinkers with it and everybody changes it and there's no standards. You can pick up one Android phone and it's completely different to that one that you used. One of them will be easy and one of them will be completely different to the other one. And they've got a a massive problem with uh, the way that it's all fragmented, the way that Android's fragmented and... that on the latest version of Android worldwide, they've got something like three percent of people yeah. on the latest version, and you you can't you can't work like that. No. That's why on the on the Pixel phones that they've made, they've actually made a sub version of Android that's just for Pixels mm-hmm. that they've kept vanilla, and it's actually got features added on top of Android because even they know that it's gone too far the other way and they're also using it as a way to make people buy a pixel phone as well by adding features into it before they get released to, to other versions and to other versions of android mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think that's one of the few things apple did i suppose well is that they locked it down a bit more but you know you use an ipad that's a couple of year up, years old and it's almost unusable because it's so slow it's sort of they don't seem to care about people that have you know, spent a lot of money on a product and they, they expect people to buy one every two years and it's just not realistic. People don't have that sort of money to throw away what, you know, what's an iPad for, 500 quid. Yeah. It's a lot of money to be spending every two years on something. It is and they're going down that same route with the MacBooks as well mm. and the MacBooks are even more expensive. They start at nearly £2,000, particularly, well, they've done it with all the range now so anything from £1,200 upwards all of them need to be replaced every couple of years. And that is unrealistic to ask because Macs do last. Macs last a long time, but they're making it to the point now where they they actually design the software planned obsolescence. They actually design the software to break, which... It's not great. No, no, it's not great. Yeah, so Android is... Fairly badly designed. I had another thing. I had another thing to say, and I forgot what it was. Oh yeah, it was. I recently had a Samsung S8, and I've just just got rid of it because the second one broke, and I was sick of it. But Samsung continue to. They're the biggest competitor for iPhone, and they continue to fiddle with Android way beyond what they should fiddle with it, and they just don't value design. Mm. That's the biggest thing. I think that Apple. It's feature cramming into it. It's not about, you know, performance and, and making it, it work as a unit. It's about, oh, they've got a feature, we need to duplicate it so we can compete. But, yeah. you know, I think you see this a lot in design. You try and compete with stuff by trying to match it. Why don't you compete with something by trying to do something a bit different? 
oh, you know, making a stand and say, you might not have the features of this, but the features we have got will work a lot better because they tested a lot more. That's why Apple can continue to make phones with two gigabytes of RAM and Android phones need to have four gigabytes of RAM and Android phones have way bigger batteries and they don't even last half as long as an iPhone. And they can't compete on that level because Apple cares about the right kind of things. And I'm by no means an Apple fanboy. And even though I've got an iPhone and I've got a MacBook, I'm not an Apple fanboy. I think they do a lot of things wrong. But they do get the technology right and they get the hardware right. And that's the thing that other people can't realise. So many, so few people value... Uh, value so lowly design-led companies design-led companies like apple and design-led companies i don't know like like braun or companies that make really nicely designed things on purpose that make you want to buy them and people companies still don't realize that that is a really valid way of making loads of money because when you make a really nicely designed product people want to buy it and people still don't realize that especially people like Samsung and big conglomerate companies. Microsoft has, have, Microsoft have finally realised it mm-hmm. by making Surface Pros. And Have you seen Surf, a Surface Studio? I don't think I have, actually. No. It's amazing. It's just a big, a big iMac. It looks like a big iMac, basically. It's a giant 27-inch screen that you can actually fold flat onto a table. That's a 27-inch touch screen that's amazing amazing looking an amazing piece of kit and Microsoft have finally realised that designing good stuff makes people want to buy it and they never realised that before but I think they're actually turning into Apple what Apple used to be and Apple mm-hmm. have turned into what Microsoft currently are <laughs> it's it's all switched mm. I, th- I think a lot of the time it's because design is actually quite quite a small part of the process uh, whereas the technical thing of, you know, if you're designing something that's going to be simple and stuff, it's actually not particularly time-consuming. It's the t- bit that takes the time is the engineering of it, the figuring out how to mass-produce it and stuff, and that is naturally a very technical role. So then you get loads of technical people and you get all these all these uh, multitude of voices competing against design, and it tends to win out, really. I think sometimes you see that with software as well. You see a huge amount of developers that need to, you know, turn a, a concept into a some sort of reality, and eventually it sort of it sort of splits, it sort of curdles itself, really. That's that's the one thing that Apple have always got right that their engineering process is completely design led. That they'll even design innards inside their devices to fit the design that they want, and they actually design the innards. To make the phone work better Which is why they design their own chipsets And it's why they design their own Well they don't design their own batteries But do you know what I mean That's why they they design all their innards To be a particular way And I I still remember now when they first announced The new MacBook Pro Five years ago or whatever it was And they actually came out and said We've designed our own fan system To be quieter So it actually oscillates at different speeds And different frequencies So the, the human ear can't hear it complete bollocks you can you can you can't hear the fan but that kind of attention to detail and you know those kind of things people just don't think about normal people don't think about and normal companies don't think about it's that attention to detail 
that I think it's that attention to detail that makes good design always mm. when it's, it's about refinement I think more than anything uh, certainly now working a, a company that has agile and stuff you have what I call refinement meetings and that's where you sort of look at the really intricate details of how stuff works and how it's going to be done and it does make the process a lot smoother and it does cut out a lot of this you know having defects and stuff so the amount of defects you get is usually quite a lot lower because the stuff has been done it's had the proper time at the start of it yeah. to understand it and it's not afraid to change as things other things change you know if you do come up against a problem you might have to change how it's done or I'll go back to a client and say well you know we can only do it in this set of circumstances and things so a lot of it's about process as well yeah in fact change is a good thing because that's one of the final things that I want to come on to because it's so warm in here that I'm going to I'm going to either pass out or fall asleep soon so we're going to we're going to round this off but one thing I do want to talk about is change change in any technology industry is massive and particularly in our industry building and designing websites it's huge change is always happening and I wondered how how you adapt to change and how and how you stay relevant and stay current and do you ever get sick of it? <laughs> um, I, th- I think with change, you sometimes need a bit of patience. If you look at a lot of companies that have, you know, innovated massively, a lot of them didn't last much longer than their initial innovation because, you know, they adopted it so early and stuff and they, they didn't know how to manage it and they made bad decisions about it and they, they sort of fell by the wayside. So sometimes it, it does pay with change to sort of, see how it develops a bit and before you really get into it. Uh, certainly with a lot of, like with a lot of VR technology now, it's such a big new thing, but no one's really come up with any sort of, you know, killer game that, you know, you must buy a VR system to experience. No one's really sort of managed that yet. Uh, but having said that, I did buy one. So <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to buy one. Hmm. Uh, you, you do see it with VR that... V- Oculus Rift spent years. They're a good example of change, really. They spent years developing dev kits, yeah, developer kits, and to make, see what it could do. Really, see what people could do with it, and yeah. you know, try and. Uh, I suppose it, it was partly to encourage people to push the technology and and find out what requirements they had to get a, a proper product that would would actually work. The the only real world example I've seen, and I speak about it all the time, is that. A lot of car companies are using are using VR now to actually hold the virtual design meetings. They'll get in a room, they'll all stick a headset on. One might be in France, one might might be in Madrid, another in Germany. They'll all get together in the same place and look at a car and actually walk around a virtual car and they can see the car to scale and they can actually look at how the design that they've done is working in real time. I think that's a really exciting mm. way that VR is being used. Yeah, I think the potential for VR is is massive, really, in sort of so many different fields, you know, in sort of learning things. You know, if you were trying to teach kids about history or something, you can put them in a battle and you could show them round and show them how it, it, it you know, what happened and things. It's a lot more engaging than sort of trying to see it in a book and things. You can still sort of add ele- interactive elements in it as well. So if you want to check that students have learnt something, you can have some sort of test at the end and things, and they can interact with answers and and in different ways. And I think also for the sort of medical profession as well, you know, treating people with things like 
post-traumatic stress and things, if you can get them to, you know, make an environment where they can relive something that's happened to them that's been particularly traumatic, I think that could probably be used to, as a sort of uh, treatment for them and things to help them, you know, recover. Well, I actually, I actually saw an example of how it's being used in the medical industry in the prosthetics industry. And what they've been doing is training people how to use their prosthetic limbs before they get them because it takes a while to produce them and et cetera, et cetera. And they've been using VR um, and a simple app that they've designed that actually simulates the limbs and they, they strap the headset on. And if they're missing a left arm, for example, they strap the headset on and suddenly they've got a left arm and they're controlling it. And that's really powerful a really real-world use. I think they've used it to track your phantom pain as well that amputees get because when you lose a limb or something, that part of your brain isn't used anymore. The parts next to it basically try and take over it and it creates a sensation that that limb's still there so you still feel, you know, your hand moving and stuff even though it's not there. So they used to do it with simple sort of mirrors. So you'd put a mirror, you know, between what would have been one leg and the other and you look in the mirror and it would trick your brain into thinking it was there and you could sort of relieve yourself of the, the pain and things. So I think they've been using VR for that as well. Uh, I think also in sort of sports, you know, particularly in motor racing and stuff, I don't think they use VR yet. It's probably not of a sort of grade high enough for them to use. But, you know, it, if you were a driver learning a track or something, all the technology is there for sort of all the tracks these days and simulators are laser scanned and stuff. All the controls, you know, you can take a wheel out of a real racing car and mount it into a cockpit. People make technology off the shelf that does that. Uh, I think in terms of just consumer goods as well, you know, if you wanted to, you know, check out a washing machine or something, you could make a 3D model of a washing machine because that already exists. You've got all the CAD drawings, all the programming for the electronics, and that already exists. You know, you create model and link those together and you can have people with a headset on, press the buttons on it and experience it and see how it works without having to go to a showroom that's got a limited floor space and things. So I think it's quite interesting in product design as well, how it could be used. It's really interesting. Do you think Do you think it's a fad? I don't think it is. I think it's still in its early stages. Uh, it's not flawless technology yet. But, you know, the amount of things that people are, are developing related to it, like better lenses and things, you know, there's there's clearly a lot, a lot to come out of it, I think. It's really just another stage on from any sort of, you know, prototyping on a computer, you know. If you're an architect and you're building, you know, a new school or something, you can have people look around it and stuff and, you know, you can have people sort of designing it at the same time, so maybe you could... You know, compress a design process so it can be done quicker or or whatever and that can save you money and things. And you can also change designs based on that without having to, you know, build anything physical. Mm. Yeah, it, I mean, it's weird because virtual reality has been around for years already. What, like 30 years or something like that? And even back in the days of Nightmare, that, that old British TV show, they, they had a little bit of VR on there and around for years and now somebody's finally cracked it. Mm. it it took facebook to buy them for for them to get a commercial products out but yeah I'm, i wonder what we're going to be like in 20 years time is it mm. going to be are we not going to have any tellies anymore 
is everybody going to have a virtual headset in 20 years' time and tellies will have vanished? I don't know, really. It's hard to say because, you know, telly's quite... It's just something you watch, really. I think you're sort of missing a lot of the technology if you can't interact with it and can't, you know, experience what things look like and, and feel like and things. So I don't know, really. I think it will be... Certainly as a design tool, I think it will be be very useful. Uh, Firefox have released versions of the browser that has VR technology in it. I've not tried it myself, but, uh, you know, so, you know, currently it's just sort of games and things. But, you know, imagine if you had a museum or something you wanted to attract people. You could have a sort of little tour around it and things first. You know, having these sort of features and things, I think can really help you to sell something because you can experience it to some degree from home before you know if you want to go there and see it or, or whatever yeah it's it's definitely really exciting times i've not got oculus riff yet i i did want to buy one but i thought there's not any reason to buy it yet there's there's not no, i'd just buy it and it'd be stuck in a room somewhere i'd never play it but it is really cool and really exciting i, I think for it to get mass appeal it needs to come down in price because even though it's £400, which really is not, to some people might be a lot of money, but it's not that much money for the VR bit, but it's the rest of the stuff. Yeah. You need a decent computer, and if you've not got a computer at all, you need a computer. So you're looking at 1500 quid. and you're looking at um, nearly £2,000 investment if you want to actually try VR at the minute, which is a big investment for anybody. It is, yeah. What do you think it's going to be like when you try it out? I've I've used VR before in other in other ways. I've never tried an Oculus Rift. I've used crappy mobile ones, and I do find them immersive. But I get I feel sick. I get sickness quite easily, and I I don't know if that's just because the ones that I've used before have been crap. Um, I mean, I, I when I got mine, I made the mistake of pretty much going straight into Dirt Rally, which is one of the most sort of nausea-inducing games you can play in VR, I think, because it's so bumpy and you're doing very tight turns, so you get a lot, of, a lot of sideways movement, and you do feel some sort of motion sickness, but after a few days, it completely disappears. It's really odd. I think, from what I've read, it's, it's your brain learning that when you put that headset on, you're entering a mode where you're not actually feeling the sensation of, of movement, but you're seeing it. Your brain sort of splits them into sort of two different things. Even NASA used to get this when they used to have people in, um, when they used to have rigs for simulating, you know, people going to the moon or into space and things. People would feel quite motion sick in that, but after a while it would go off because they'd they'd sort of acclimatised to it. So you'll probably feel some of that on some things, but yeah, it, it depends very much on the game, really. I've I, w- I was going to buy a PSVR one, and I didn't, and. I actually only wanted to buy it to play Resident Evil because I just wanted to scare myself shitless playing that. But I am interested in the racing side of it, but I do think with the racing side of it, you need you need a steering wheel. Mm, you need quite a lot of more stuff, probably another yeah. grand at least. Yeah, you do. But, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'm definitely interested to try it out. Mm. Yeah. Should we give it a go then? <laughs> Let's leave it there because I'm going to die uh, of warmth and dehydration in this room. Have you got anything else you want to say? I don't think so now. God, let's leave it there then. <laughs>
So there you go. That was season one, episode four of Interesting Conversations. I have been your host, Craig Burgess, as always. This episode was really fascinating. I want to thank Julian so much. I've known him for so long and I've never spoken to him really about simulators or really F1. His his knowledge of F1 and motorsport is ridiculous. I've got another friend as well who's very, very knowledgeable about F1 and I've often had fantastic and interesting conversations that have lasted several hours even, over a couple of pints in the pub, obviously, that have lasted several hours just talking about something that actually I'm not even interested in. I've never really watched a full season of F1. I've watched a couple of races and not much else, so it doesn't interest me at all, but that is the fascination, I think, with interesting conversations. If you're a good talker and if you're a good raconteur, you can talk to anybody about any topic and you can find the interesting stuff underneath it. The next episode of Interesting Conversations will be out in around two weeks' time, and I know I always say that, it never usually is two weeks' time, it's usually a bit longer, but it is probably going to be two weeks' time, because the next episode I have already got recorded, it is fascinating, and I cannot wait to share it with you, it was mind-blowing, the thing that we talk about most of all throughout the episode is fascinating, and I'm going to leave you on two words and it'll give you the only clue that you're going to need for the next episode. And once I say these two words, the episode is going to go off, so I'll see you in two weeks' time. So these are the two words. Arctic Monkeys. Arctic Monkeys.